<clears throat> After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There, he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Galileo said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul, and Galileo showed no concern whatever. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Centrea because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who, by grace, had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Thanks, Ritika. Hey, everybody. Morning. 
So if you weren't here last year, for a really large portion of last year, we were going through the book of Acts, which is the part of the Bible that tells the story of the expansion of the gospel from the from the resurrection and ascension of Jesus until in the first generation it became a three-continent movement. And there's eight chapters left that we haven't done, and instead of spending 27 weeks working our way through those, there's a lot of repetition, including Paul giving the same sermon like four times. And as much as I know you like hearing me give the same sermon four times, um, what we th- I thought would be better is if we went through and, and looked at something in particular, which is throughout the last eight chapters of Acts, things get tougher and more difficult on the Christians that are sharing Christ and living for the gospel, and the more pressure that comes on them, the greater they are. It's amazing. And, and including literal shipwrecks and everything in their experience trying to sink them, and yet all the way through this, these basically normal people who have been changed by Jesus are just, they have just unsinkable faith. So over the next eight weeks, I want to go through seven steps or parts, really, of what it looks like to have a faith that is actually just unsinkable, no matter what you face in your life. Before I lived in Wisconsin for seven years, my wife and I and family lived in Florida, and let's not dwell on that right now. Other than that, I learned a lot about boats and fishing and the ocean and those kinds of things I hadn't had the opportunity to learn about before. And one of the things that you find out is that anybody who goes out on the ocean, one of the first and biggest decisions that they make is what kind of boat they're going to go out in because there are lots of different kinds of boats. For example, this kind of boat right here is a flat-bottom boat. It's totally flat on the bottom, which means it's, it, kicks, it kicks behind in like five inches of water. You want to go like fly fish for redfish or chase gators or something like that. As long as there is no wind and you're on flat water, the thing is a dream. It's awesome for scalloping and so on. But the minute there is a 10-mile-an-hour wind and there is a chop on the water at all, it is worthless. It is a death trap. Um, and then other people be like, you know, if I had enough money, I'd get one of those big, like, half-million-dollar hatteras, and they really are cool, and they don't always sit in the water like that. Um, and when Lisa and I were last visiting Florida, we drove by, like, a whole line of these where all the rich people have their boats, and there's part of me that was like, I would really love to have one of those and go chase tuna. But the reality is, is that they really are only good for a couple things. They're not actually really good fishing boats. Um, they have a couple of systems that if they fail, the boat will sink. Um, they are the boat that needs to get saved as much as any other boat. Enormous maintenance costs. And if you hit a sideways wave just right, even though it's a 50-foot boat, it will still capsize. And they don't insure them like you would like if you owned one. But if you ask the question, what do the people use who have to rescue everybody? There's only one kind of boat those people use. And it's this kind. And it's not really good for much else. It's actually, it's not a very good fishing boat. It's not very good in the flats. It, um, it's kind of, it's a little bit expensive to run. You always have to have two engines on it. It's kind of inflatable, which doesn't sound that great. It's really hard to climb into if you're in the water outside of it. But it does have this benefit. It is absolutely unsinkable. You can fill that bad boy with lead and it won't sink. If you're 35 miles offshore in 10-foot seas and your hatteras flips over, that is the boat you want coming after you. And it will beat you to death on the way home, but it will not sink. Not literally to death. That's just a southern frame. And one of the things that—and there's a lot of ways in which our lives and going out to sea are similar. And one of those similarities is you don't know what's going to happen in your life, 
And if you leave the dock and there is not a wisp of wind in the air, it doesn't mean that you're not going to be in a gale when you're out there. You look at the weather report all you want, but that Gulf of Mexico is a crazy woman. And so, and life is like that. There's so many things that you can't control. The environmental weather of your life is not something that you can actually get a handle on. And, and you don't know what's going to happen to you, but you have to decide what boat you're going to be in when you leave the dock. And the, the boat that you are in life is actually your character. That's the boat that you're in. That's what you're riding. That's the asset that you have when life happens to you is your character. And the question is, what kind of character, what kind of faith, what kind of person is unsinkable? Because you have no idea what's going to happen to you out there in life. And you may want to go out for a nice chicken cruise, as we used to call them in the South, which is you cruise around and you eat chicken. And you might just want to go out and see the sunrise and drive around and swim with dolphins and go to a, a remote, like, beach area and propose to your sweetheart and coast back in with sea turtles surfacing by your bow with the sun setting over your left shoulder in great perfection. And that may happen. And it may not happen. And you have to be ready for everything. You've got to be unsinkable if you're going to leave the dock. And so what we're going to do for the next seven weeks is look at how Acts 20 through 28 teaches us to have that kind of faith and to become that kind of person. And part of it is built on a frustration that I have as a pastor of the misconception that tons of Christians, including myself at my worst moments, have. And that is this. On one level, we believe that Jesus' death and resurrection is to forgive us from our sins, that we do truly sinful and damnable things. And when Jesus died and rose and we put our trust in him, we were forgiven. And so the guilt that we should feel if we have a conscience that it's all, that's at all alive, and the shame that we really should feel because we really are idiots in front of everybody else, can be taken away through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And some people even get so far as to say, and God wants to change my life so that I'll quit hurting myself and hurting the people around me so I won't be a mobile narcissist. And that is true. That is step two. It turns out that there's more than two steps. And one of them is the next step is to recognize that not only does, does God want you to like sort of learn the basics of regulating what you're supposed to do and what not to do so you don't immediately hurt people. But sin actually has been producing in us since the day we were born an enormously fragile, brittle, weak, and vulnerable character. So that when stuff happens to us, we're not ready. And so we actually can't do the things we know we're supposed to do. We don't like the things we're supposed to love. We can't be happy in the roles and responsibilities that we're meant for. And we're constantly full of a kind of anxiety and desperation just when life is going normal. And then two-foot seas is enough to sink us to the bottom. And so one of the things that we have to recognize is that if you don't do number three, you're never going to get number two. And you're going to be making nothing but a shipwreck, so to speak, of your life and everybody around you. If you don't get to the third step of saying, what does it mean to believe in and trust in and follow Jesus in such a way as to form a character in me that is not fragile, that is not brittle, that is not weak, that is not vulnerable, so that I am unsinkable? And that when you put me together with a bunch of other Christians that are unsinkable, 
We can tow anyone, we can save anyone, we can do anything that God's providence would call on us to do. So we're going to look at these seven, hopefully somewhat sequentially, but parts of what it looks like to not just believe in Jesus, to believe in Jesus the way he's actually inviting us to believe in him in such a way that would produce an absolutely unsinkable faith. And the first one is fairly simple, and I will show it to you. You'll be like, Nick, seriously? That's, that's like step number one? And it is step number one, and it's super important, and you don't believe it, and you can't, we can't get anywhere until it gets into our bones, and it's simply this. Don't give up. And by don't give up, I don't mean don't give up on anything ever. If you're going to go out to lunch with nine people after the service and nobody wants to go to Kudoba with you, just give up and go with them where they're going. Like there's lots of things that it's perfectly fine to give up on and you should give up on. Right? But there are some things that you should never give up on and that is Jesus and everything Jesus has said you are and called you to. And The thing that will cause you to give up on those things are many fears directly related to them that you have to not give yourself to. An enormous part of human existence is to not let our fears take us, to simply stand firm against them. And sophisticated people are really good at denying that fear is one of our greatest motivators because that's very unsophisticated. And we do not like to admit that about ourselves. But it is a fundamental human fact that much of what we call our reasoning is a warmed-over fear that came through our prefrontal cortex. And so we need to recognize that the very first step in believing and following Jesus in a way that makes us unsinkable is to not give up, to not give ourselves to fear, and to realize that in those things, God has pledged himself to be with us. One of the things that's really kind of interesting about this passage is that there's only one— there's a lot of things that happen in the passage that are very clearly God's providence, that God works out. But there's only one thing that God explicitly says. And one of the interesting things about what God says is you would almost expect it to be the thing that we could have never figured out without his help. Sort of like the key to the code. So you're like on the little spirituality computer and there's this code and you just can't break it. And then God gives you a little key, E-F-H, capital exclamation point, 4792. And you go, oh, right. And you type it in and the whole thing like solves itself. That's absolutely not what happens when God speaks. It's not, just read the whole Bible. You go back, you can read the, all the prophets in the Old Testament. What do they mainly say? Stuff we were already supposed to know. Right? All the prophets, what the prophets say? Would you quit doing that? You idiot. It's a whole, I just summed up a third of the Bible for you. <laughs> I told you not to do that. Would you not do that and trust me? Ugh! The uh part is in there. It's just more lyrical. And the same thing is true in this passage. When God actually speaks, he doesn't say, Paul, you're going to meet this guy named Aaron, and he's going to have like a really strange slingshot with him. And when you meet him, you're going to say, it's not like meeting up with a spy. The thing that God reveals and speaks directly to Paul is actually the most obvious thing that could possibly be part of this narrative. He says, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in the vision. Okay, this is going to be good. And this is what Paul says. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. 
And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. Paul was already there. He was already talking. He was already speaking. He was already preaching the gospel. He was already doing all of those things. But he was probably afraid that somebody was going to kill him. And he's a human like anybody. And so God shows up and he says, listen, don't give up. Don't give up. Now, I have highlighted the part of that that is for you. Because the rest of that sentence, no one is going to attack or harm you because I have many people in the city, that wasn't even true for Paul once he left Corinth. That wasn't even true for Paul. The minute Paul left Corinth, all kinds of people attacked him and harmed him. All God was saying was, he wasn't saying, listen, if you follow me, nothing bad is going to happen to you, and you'll be really rich and super healthy, and it'll be great. That's not what God said. God is just saying, because you have this gospel task, and because you're afraid to complete it, I'm just going to tell you something that's going to help you. I have many people in this city. No one is going to harm you. Keep working. But there's, there's no promise for after that. That's why Paul could say a couple chapters later to people, he said, it is through many hardships that we enter the kingdom of God. Paul didn't believe that he'd be saved permanently from harm. He was just given enough assurance at that moment. But the part that's highlighted is affirmed for all Christians in all kinds of places in the Bible, not least what we call the Great Commission, where Jesus says to all his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them away everything that I commanded. And then he says what? And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. That is, speak the gospel. Don't shut up. Don't let people back you down. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. And I will be with you until my return. That is right now for all of us, including you. The bolded portion of that is immediately relevant. Now, I want to kind of narrow this down into some practical areas specifically in this passage because that's kind of, that's kind of a general statement. And I, I, you can kind of follow the episodes of this passage by following this, a particular couple, Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila actually come up a lot in writings about the church, but mainly in association, in association with gender roles. Because Priscilla is it's one of the only places in the Bible where the woman's name is mentioned first when a couple is referred to. And a lot of people has, have discerned from this um, certain things about women's roles positively towards women. I'm not going to talk about any of that today, and here's why. Because I think that all of those arguments are completely inconclusive. I don't think you can prove how the church should have gender roles on the basis of the order of two people's names. But I do think a lot can be learned about Priscilla and Aquila and their unsinkable faith, which includes both Aquila and Priscilla, and their significance in the history of the church under God's providence because their faith is completely unsinkable. And the first thing is that they, out of fear, they didn't give up on work in normal life. You may not have thought that that was one of the ones because it's not spiritual enough. But this is exactly how the passage starts. It starts with people who were not too good to do normal life and embrace the roles and responsibilities that normal life requires. Paul shows up, meets these folks, and starts making tents for a living. 
right? In most of the agoras, the places that were the marketplaces, people would open booths and close them over the course of a day, and tents were obviously the thing that was most easy to use for that, especially under all the sun that there was. And so there was a big demand for tents, and it was a good trade. And, and the thing that's interesting about that is Paul is a professional missionary. He's a, he, he talks for a living. And yet, when he shows up here, he needs a day job. There's nobody here who's already Christian to pay for his lifestyle. And so he stops, and he gets a needle, and he starts sewing tents. And it says that he does it because he was a tent maker. Now, in modern Christianity, when we say tent maker in the church today, we do not mean somebody who makes tents. This may confuse you if you're new to the church. A tent maker in the church today is somebody who goes to do a gospel mission of some kind, and in the place where they minister, they get a job, and they pay for their own lifestyle, and they share the gospel. Because, and that comes from this passage. Paul made tents, and it says what? On the Sabbath days, he went and he preached about Jesus in the synagogue. But Paul's a talker, and yet, blue-collar work is not beneath him. There's no evidence that in doing manual labor, he had any problem with that, that hurt his feelings, he didn't think that he should be doing that kind of work. He didn't think that that was human enough. He thought that it was somehow demoralizing because he had to turn wrenches or whatever. He didn't have that attitude at all. He had actually acquired the trade. And in addition to that, Paul wasn't just a talker. He was a scholar. This is a guy who had the equivalent of a PhD or two. It would be like me going, let's say I went to like some theology school, and I got a PhD in Old Testament and New Testament theology. I came to be a pastor here, and I got a, I became a plumber so I could do it. Most people who get three A PhDs don't want to become plumbers so they can do what they studied. There's no evidence that Paul had a problem with that. And then when Silas and Timothy showed up, they started making tents so that Paul could preach full-time. And you'd be like, well, then now, we, here's the thing. Silas and Timothy were professional missionaries. Silas was the top prophet dude in a huge church in Antioch. He was a big deal. Timothy had been a professional missionary for a while. What would you have been like if you're Timothy and you're like in Leicester or Derby or wherever, and Paul's like, hey, you want to be on my missionary team? Here's what you're going to get to do. You're going to get to sit around in a really hot workshop and sew tents for Jesus. Right? You think he was like, oh, awesome. Right? Circumcise me and sign me up. Right? That's, and, and yeah, look, this is totally Paul's attitude. This is their attitude. Silas and Timothy, it's their attitude. These people do not see fulfilling their roles and responsibilities and only being able to do ministry on their other time as anything difficult. But here's what we do see. We see Paul, while he's working, investing in an enormously significant gospel relationship with this couple, Priscilla and Aquila. Part of the fear— so, so, okay, if this is a thing we're not to give up on, what's the fear that would cut in us? And the fear that would cut in us is the feeling that in doing this kind of stuff, basically for other people, we're kind of being exploited and extracted in our lives. And, I mean, people feel this way. I mean, how many people have felt, just, I mean, look in the last week, like, I do all this work, I have all these responsibilities, I'm taking care of these idiotic children, and I don't do anything for me. Who's, who has had this phrase pass through their mind in the last week? You don't have to raise your hand, actually. When am I going to do something for me? 
right? I bet there's like a lot of single people in here who are thinking that, which is probably crazy, but that's just how we, that's how we feel. That's how we are. And here's the thing that we have to recognize. You're right. You're right. You are being exploited and extracted for the good of other people, especially if you have children. And that is right. That is what you are for. And it is the fact that we will not accept that our life really is about our God-given roles and responsibilities that we feel so anxious and desperate while doing them. Right? My wife is in a book club, and the book they're reading this couple of months is um, Carolyn McCauley's book, Radical Womanhood, which talks about the history of the femi- feminist movement and how it's affected Christian women understanding their womanhood. And it says a lot of positive things about, um, about the feminist movements and their various versions over the last several hundred years. But one of the things it says that is negative about that is that there was a narrative that was part of third-wave feminism that essentially painted the home in the narrative as a four-walled prison instead of the garden. Historically, the home was the garden. It was where everything worthwhile was produced, and therefore the woman being the center of that garden was a place of dignity. It was verdant. It grew. Both humans and everything else. The household was the center of life. And most husbands were there too because production was done on the homestead. Everybody was together. It wasn't the husband went out to work and the wife was at home. It used to be that families worked together for their own provision. It was only industrialization that then the man left, which is kind of unnatural. But what that created was this mythology that if the home was a prison, what do we generally want to do with prisons? Leave them. The problem is, is that whichever gender you assign that work to, all of the most important things in human life happen inside that prison. What happens if you start making humans? Stop making humans. In relatively geological short order, there stop being humans. Making humans is literally the most important thing in humanity. But it's kind of considered the worst work. It's bloody. Right? You know what's next after making humans most important work in the world? Making food. That's next. You know what's after that? It's not physics. It's cleaning is the next most important thing because otherwise you'll get sick and die. The poop has to go somewhere. Okay? We could go through the top 20 And making iPhones is not going to make our list. You understand what I'm saying? Now, whether you think women should be the primary person responsible for that, or men, or shared, or 50, 70-year-old, I don't even know. Doesn't matter. What matters is a narrative that says the roles and responsibility actually most central to human life, and therefore should be seen with the most dignity, are actually beneath you and a prison you must escape. It's hard to find a TV show to watch with your family, especially when you have a three-year-old as the youngest and an eight-year-old boy as the next youngest. And then you have girls, and the boy thinks everything's boring, and so on. And so we actually started watching this period piece that goes all the way back to 1910 on Netflix called When Calls the Heart. And the men in this show are basically all coal miners. Like literally pickaxe, 35 of them or something die in an accident, covered in coal dust when they come home. And like modern people, we watch that and we're like, who would do that? Who would go into a mine and dig out 
coal and die young? And the answer is men. And men have always done that. And men have always done the worst jobs and the most dangerous jobs for humanity to time immemorial. And we say all we want about evening out the genders, but men have always fought our wars. They've always been our police. They've always done the jobs that were the most dangerous. They've, I think it's nine out of ten human adults that die on the job in America are men. I think that's when you include military statistics. But that's just, that's just reality. The people who die in holes in the ground are men. They've always been men. Men have always been exploited. If you're like, I'd be like, I go out to work, I got this college degree, I should be driving a nicer car, and blah, blah, blah. No, you shouldn't. No, you shouldn't. You exist to be exploited. For humanity, particularly for the home, and the garden that you create with a woman of your choosing, as long as she also chooses you back. That is what we're for. That is what you are for. These are our roles and responsibilities. This is what we're called to. This is what life is like. And the more desperate you feel in it because you can't accept it, the more you're going to sink on your own weight. You don't even can't even take a foot wave. It's like making a boat that implodes on itself. And... Yet somehow we really feel like, unless we're sitting alone, journaling our feelings over coffee in some coffee shop, or driving a boat we can't afford, or going on a vacation that doesn't really add anything to the quality of our lives, if we had just had a better attitude, that that's living. And it's just not true. And it's not until we take our pleasure in parenting and take our pleasure in marrying and burying and taking our pleasure in eating and drinking and laughing and making jokes and making fun of one another and enjoying our, each other's company and living together for good ends that we will enjoy normal life as God has given it to us and we won't be afraid that our life is burning away through exploitation. And now listen, be, I want you to be, hear me. I'm not talking about actual exploitative practices of other humans. I'm simply talking about what life is made up of and how educated and industrial people tend to think that normal life work is beneath us and therefore feel desperate doing it. But what Paul did was he picked up the needle, he did the work, he invested in his co-workers, and when he had free time, he preached the gospel. It's not rocket science. And rocket science isn't on the top 20 list either. The second thing to not give up on is on our gospel ambitions. It's kind of the opposite side of that coin. And that is, if you believe in Jesus, really, and you care about what he cares about, there will be some gospel ambition that will grow in you. And it will be very different spread out among us. For some people, it'll be adopting or being a foster parent. For some people, it'll be to become a doctor so that you can help people or to become a cleaning lady so that you can help people. For some people, it'll be to um, trade out the visitor cards to make sure that they're there so that if there's a visitor here next week, they can fill out a visitor card. For some people, it'll be being a teacher at any school, not just an inner city school, but maybe that. For some people, it'll be starting a business and opening a franchise and hoping you can provide a decent job for a significant group of people. 
For some people, it'll be going into um, scholarship or economics to help reorder resources and make people—there's lots of things worth doing, but there's lots of things worth doing for Jesus' reasons, including helping people come to him. And so that his ways and things about him will be known among them so that you can shine his light everywhere you go, no matter what the task or worthwhile work you're doing. It may be to, if you really like this church, to actually leave it to be part of a church plant in a place that doesn't have a good church. It might be taking a job in a different city because you want to be part of what God is doing there. It might be giving up some of the privacy of a weakness because you're going to become a small group leader. Or not being able to go to a Sunday class or to get to lunch as fast as you want because you're serving in a children's ministry. There's so many different gospel ambitions, from things that other people would sneer at that are tiny or stupid, to things that seem big and sexy. But if you believe in Jesus and you care about him, you will have some kind of gospel ambition. And you will be afraid to give it up. Don't. Don't give up. Don't give up your gospel ambitions. There's this part where there's this very simple sentence that ought to chill our blood in this passage. That if you don't know how to read narrative parts of the Bible, you'll just read over it. Paul stayed in Corinth for some time, and then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. I think that's a prepositional phrase, right? Accompanied? I mean, that's just a phrase. And is it adverbial? I can't remember. Yeah, anyway. So the point is that, did you, if, do you remember the first couple verses? The first couple verses said that Priscilla and Aquila were natives of, anybody? Pontus, which is in the northwestern part of Turkey. And then they had been in Rome. And then because they were Jews, they got kicked out. So they had made a home in a city and built a business and bought homes and done whatever they— and the emperor was just like, you guys are out. All, if you're Jew, you're gone. And so they had to pick up everything and sell everything and move their business, and they went to Corinth, which makes sense. It's on a shipping route. It's very cosmopolitan. There's a very big trading area, big need for tents. Makes, makes sense. So they set up in Corinth. They meet some dude named Paul who they'd never heard of. He's like, hey, I make tents. He sits down one day, they all make tents together, and they like pay him, and they make it work. And then they become, they learn about Jesus, they're part of this church growing, and then Paul says, you know, there's a church all over the world, back in Turkey, down in Israel, and Syria, all these places, and God has called me to build it among all people. I'm gonna go. You know, they're they're sitting over like bread and lentils one night. He's like, you guys want to come with me? Think, Think about it. These people have been transplanted twice on two different continents. I don't know how many trade languages they had to learn just to function. I don't know how old they are. I don't know how many kids they did or didn't have. I don't know any of those things. But here's what I know. When Paul got on the ship to go to Syria, where they apparently had never been, they were on the boat with him. Needles and canvas in tow. 
And they didn't even get to hang with Paul because it says when he got to Ephesus, he left them there, went down to Syria, and then went back to central Turkey to strengthen the churches. So they didn't, he, they didn't even get Paul if he was a super close friend of theirs. There is only gospel ambition here, friends. They left their home. They didn't get to hang out with the person they'd become close friends with. They got stationed in this place called Ephesus, which actually makes really good sense. They had lived in two cosmopolitan cities, so Paul puts them in a large church that is difficult to pastor in the second largest and most cosmopolitan city in the entire Greco-Roman Empire. And it turns out they become some of the main pastors of one of the five great churches of the, of the ancient world. They didn't have to leave Corinth. They didn't have to give up anything. They didn't have to go anywhere. But they also had some kind of gospel ambition that they weren't willing to give up. And for all of us, not just Priscilla and Aquila, there is this sense that there is a gospel ambition in us, but then there's lots of other ambitions in us that aren't necessarily bad ambitions. Some are against the gospel, but others of them are just other things that we're interested in and that we like. And there's nothing anti-Jesus about them. And yet we still have this fear that is a reasonable fear that at some point our gospel ambitions will endanger our other ambitions. That they will take the time or the resources or they will make the decision for us that undecides the other thing. Whether it's a somebody we think we're going to date or marry, whether it's a job that we want to keep or pursue, whether it's just a hobby that we just feel like we really like, whether it's a certain portion of our income that we just really like to spend on something, whatever it is, on some level we are afraid that if we keep and feed our gospel ambitions that at some point they will come in contact with other things we really love. And I cannot ease your mind on that. It's probably true. I mean, Jesus said that one of the greatest things that chokes out any life in the gospel is money and the worries of this world. And what is money but liquid opportunity and ambition? And so there are only a couple options. You can either let that conflict sink you because it will erode the interior. It's kind of like your boat getting termites. It'll eat away at the inside of the structural integrity of your faith until the whole thing just collapses. Or you can align your ambitions. And sometimes that means you can keep your other ambitions, and sometimes it means you can't. Um, one of, the, one of the ways that you can think about this is directly related to the last point as well. So whether we're talking about your ordinary life, roles and responsibilities, or your gospel ambitions that God has laid in front of you, in, in some ways you can think about it like this. You are a candle that is lit and you can't get unlit. You are a burning candle. Now, you can have two different perspectives on being a burning candle. One, you can be mad about it. You can be angry that you're a burning candle because you're burning up. There's wax dripping off of you. There's wax being dissipated in the air. That flame that is burning on the top of your head is going to end you. And that's true for you. You're getting older. Your either body is already breaking down or it's going to be soon, right? Peak health is like 25 or something like that. I'm well past that, right? You're going to go to the dentist more. You're going to go to the doctor more. Eventually, you're going to glue teeth into your head and then you're going to die, Okay? That's reality. That's true. You are a burning candle. Okay?
okay? And some of you have five inches left, and some of you have one inch left, and we all—it may be a little different, but we're all burning candles. And you can choose to either be mad about the fact that you're losing wax, or you can decide to be happy— you can decide to be happy that you're shining light and producing warmth. Those are essentially your options. You can't blow it out, and you can't be something else. And every day, every moment, as you stand before God and you decide who and what you are, whether or not to accept what he says, either you can be glad that you are being used up for your true roles and responsibilities and your gospel ambitions, or you can be mad about it. You can be an angry candle or you can be a happy candle, but you are a candle and you are getting shorter. But if you are a happy candle, you are also going to be strong. Because instead of killing every drive of courage to have the bravery to stand up to your fears and not give up, you will have a happiness and a buoyancy and a motivation if you're happy to be what you are. If you're glad about the light and the flame and the heat, if you're glad that it's for others, if, you, if you're glad that you were made to be exploited and you're glad to do it, you will be incredibly strong. You'll be un- your faith will be unsinkable. And if you won't, if you'll only be angry about it, you're not going to make it off the dock. You're going to be like that guy who puts his boat in off the trailer and didn't put the plug in the back of it, and it sinks right there on the boat launch. The last of the third things, of the three things to not give up on, is empowering people who may surpass you. Empowering people who may surpass you. It says later on about Aquila and Priscilla. It said, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Now, if you read those verses, Apollos is the poster child for being a perfect recipe for feeling intimidated. If you're Priscilla and Aquila, you haven't been there very long. This is your first ministry assignment. Your academic background is you so tense, right? You're racially probably not of the native of that area. You're from a state, a few states away. This church is already pretty difficult. There's already been riots in the city. I mean, like, and yet, not, and here's this like smooth golden boy who shows up. He's from Alexandria, one of those academic cities in the empire. He's clearly well-educated. His education includes a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He knows more about the Bible than they do. He speaks with passion, so he's not a droner. He's clearly a good debater because when you, when you read about when he goes to Corinth, he can openly refute people who are arguing with him in real time. So he's not just good at writing talks and sounding interesting. You can attack him in real time, and he can refute you in real time. He's probably significantly more formidable as a figure than Paul was, their mentor. And and he's wrong in public. So they have a way to take him down. But what do they do? What they do is, is that they invite him privately into their home. 
because they don't want to hurt any of his potential or credibility. And they want to bring him into a place where they, he, they can show that they accept and love him. And then they explain to him the bit that he doesn't get. Which is that when we're baptized, it is not just a baptism of repentance, the baptism of John, t- to let go of our sins and to receive God's forgiveness. It is also a baptism into the fullness of God's spirit and empowering that we're filled with and drenched by, and that there is this lifting up into the life of the Spirit. And that is indispensable. And you can see Paul is like, okay. And once he's got that, he is off to the races. And friends, if you're Priscilla and Aquila, and you left Corinth to do this work, and you've been there a really short time, and already your replacement is imminent, how do you think you feel at dinner? I mean, think about that. It's so easy to just pass over that. They gave up everything. They sell their business. They leave Corinth. They make their third home that's just mentioned here. Who knows how many there was? They're in the city that they don't know. They have this pastoral charge. They just took this job, and already somebody three times awesomer than them is now on their doorstep, and it's qualified as they are probably more because of them. You and I, listen, every year a new model of 20-year-old rolls off the assembly line. And they're just, there's going to be people coming up around us and beside us and under us that are just, they're going to be better than us. Especially if all that we have learned over hard years of effort and stress and work, we can impart to them easily, and they have a humble spirit enough to learn and listen. I mean, those people are the worst, aren't they? The people who are like humble, and they listen, and they care, and they want to learn. You can bring them along a decade in like 14 minutes, and you're like, I spent 10 years learning that stuff. And like, just like that, they're as good as you. And your mind is already not as quick as it used to be. And who doesn't like to listen to a young person, right? And the fear that goes along with this is that the person who's going to surpass you could very well be the one who replaces you. And the reality is, is that that's right. And the worldly solution is, like, if you read, if you read, um, like leadership literature, business literature. One of the things that they'll say is, look, you don't have to believe that there's only enough pieces of pizza for the people who are there. You can make the pizza bigger, right? You can expand it so like a church could grow. And so when amazing people are raised up, Nick, you don't have to lose your job. Like there's more opportunities to do ministry and all these talented people can come into those places and they're, yeah, and that's totally right. But that is still an atheistic response to this problem. Because the reality is, is that some of those people who are coming up as the pie grows are going to be better than me. And they should be in my position, and I should be in one of theirs. So the, the Christian attitude has got to be better than that. Now, you can include that, and I believe that. But on some level, you've got to ask yourself, what are you in this equation? Because if you, if you think, think about it this way, you could be the boss or you could be the soldier. See, if you're the soldier, the idea that somebody is going to replace you is not a problem. That's not a problem. Somebody who's better than you shows up on your team, raising him up so he can have your back and shoot over your shoulder, that sounds fantastic. You're like, great. And if that person is better than you and he becomes your commanding officer so he can keep your butt alive and make sure you go from victory to victory, that sounds like a great thing. 
right? And if it's time for you to go home, because he's going to replace you, you know what the proper response is? God bless you. Hoorah, we're going home. And what is ministry? What is life? What are all of our roles of charge but war? But weight and stress, provision and protection. They're all shepherding. They're all caring for little flocks of which you must defend, you must provide for, you must make them all that you can be. They are your charge. You are responsible. You see, if you see that as the calling of your life, and somebody says, you're deposed, you're like, thank you, Jesus. Yes, I receive that. But you see, if you, if you think you're the boss, either because you are, or you're the dad, or the mom, or the whatever, and you believe that what you're doing is being in charge, and you're the winner, and people should just—and and that's your attitude, and that you, you earn every dollar of your salary, and they should really pay you twice as much, and man, why don't these young people understand and listen to you, and so on? Then whenever anybody's coming up, it feels like a terrible threat, and the first thing you want to do is put a knife in their back, or hammer that nail that's sticking up down, or put these people in their place, and begin to protect, and the minute we do that, fear has taken us. We have lost our gospel ambitions. We have forgotten what our role really is, and we don't know who we are. And that is not fitting a Christian. All of our authority, no matter what position we are in, is for the good of those we serve. Jesus said, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Philippians 2, 3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something that we grasp, but took on the nature of, him, nature of a servant and took on the death of, even the death of the cross. That is how Christians lead. That is how they fight. And I remember when I was in my early 20s, which is now what I'm in now, um, I read On the Priesthood by um, John Chrysostom, a saint from the 5th century, and he said that any person in the ministry, you could say this for any calling or trust, should always be glad, as glad to be deposed as to be elevated if it is for the right reasons and in keeping our integrity. If you get thrown out of your job because you do the right thing, you should rejoice just as much as being fired as being hired. And I, as a pastor, I've always hoped for you that you'd have a better pastor than me. I hope that every day. I can't wait for one of these interns or one of you people to second career and just be a, clearly a better pastor than me. In fact, I had a conversation with my wife this week where we talked about how to organize our finances so that it was, when it was time for me to step down, even if that was next year or 20 years from now, we would be financially ready for whatever pay cut that would involve. Because we could never let our finances make us defensive so that either I couldn't do the right thing and be fired or move out of the way when the right person came along. And, but we, we all have charges and I don't believe that because I want to be some kind of hero or because I want to be cool pastor guy. I believe that because that I believe that is a Christian attitude. 
And I believe that we get the attitude from Jesus the Christ. And I believe it informs all of our charges, all of our ambitions, all of our roles and responsibilities, and how we empower everybody who comes after us. And it's only in understanding that and believing that we begin to recognize that it, it is only in not fearing and not giving up and doing what we're called to do, either in our roles and responsibilities, our gospel ambitions, or in our empowering of others, that God then, through our obedience, can in his providence bring full circle the things that he loves and the things that we have grown to love. One of the things that's so easy to miss in this, in this passage is that it ends this way. After Priscilla and Aquila empowered this guy, Apollos, he didn't replace them. Do you know what happened? It says he wanted to go to Achaia. Do you know where Achaia is? It is the province in southern Greece in which are the two cities, Athens and Corinth. Do you see the circle? God sends Paul to Corinth. He builds a love in Priscilla and Aquila and Silas and Timothy and Paul, a love to make the gospel and Jesus known in the city of Corinth. All of their other ambitions are put under that. They work and he protects them and they build this church and they finally leave and they all burn to ashes, whatever they wanted to do in that city, and they go to some other place because the gospel has called them on and they all couldn't help but think of their friends and maybe their relatives and people that they loved that led to Christ and not knowing if later the church would be crushed and who would lead them and who's the shepherd going to be and who's going to pass to that church, and how is it going to grow, and what's going to happen? And they get to Ephesus, and Paul is somewhere in little villages in Galatia somewhere, talking to people about Jesus in little churches and huts, not even realizing that some crazy guy from Alexandria in northern Africa had decided to go to Ephesus, who had already been enormously trained and gifted, so that his second-in-command, Priscilla and Aquila, could further empower him, and then send him to Corinth so that he could be the next great pastor of that church for a generation. So that Corinth would be one of the great churches in the first century. And so that when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he used to have to say, listen, not only am I not anything and that you should be humble, but Apollos, he and I are the same and neither of us are anything, but we should all seek humility and do work with God. Because Apollos was such a big deal to them, he was a bigger deal than Paul. And certainly Priscilla and Aquila. But, but Paul could have never known that. Priscilla and Aquila could have never known that. All they could do is not give in to fear. All they could do is trust God. All they could do is believe. All they could do is not give up, not give in to fear. Trust the God who had called them to what was in front of them, to embrace their roles and responsibilities, to embrace their gospel ambitions, and to embrace empowering anybody around them in any way they could, even if those people would surpass them and replace them. Because they knew that only then could they trust God for God to work the providence of things, for God to bring about his ends. And ultimately, the ends they would bring about would be a lifting up of the gospel passions that they had so that they would be full of joy. But even in all the moments where they couldn't see God working the providence, all of that time, they weren't lost. Because all of that time, they were already happy candles. Because they already believed and trusted God didn't give way to fear, and didn't give up. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, please help us to take the first step to whatever extent is necessary to decide in faith 
what things we will never give up. To decide on the basis that what vessel, what unsinkable character we will not give up until you have built it in us. And will you give us the comfort and the joy of knowing that in not giving up and not giving in a fear and living in gospel obedience, that when we do that, we can know that you are with us in the moment, that we can take joy in all that is before us, no matter how hard it is, and yet we know in faith that in the future, we will see that which you have worked, that you love and that we love, that our burned-up light will not, have, will not have accomplished nothing, but you will have used it to accomplish great things. We pray in Jesus' name.